0: The Guardian. Ah, there's that hobby again, you can see it now. They're shrieking. That's a bird of prey.
1: Science Weekly is going to sound a little different this episode because we're going on a wild night out. I'm Phoebe Weston, I work on The Guardian's Age of Extinction project and this evening I'm by the River Dart, just outside Totnes in Devon. It's around 830 the sun is about to set and we're standing in a beautiful woodland with huge beech trees and with me I have my guide.
0: I'm Chris Salisbury and I'm uh, local to these parts, I'm an outdoorsman and a storyteller and author of the book Wild Nights Out. The book is being published by Chelsea Green in June this year.
1: Excellent, so are we heading down to the river now?
0: Yeah, we're going to go down into the dark valley and walk along that majestic river for a little while.
1: Let's walk on. Yeah. We'll be experiencing the wild and journeying deeper into the dark. Because the signs of wildlife we find at night can tell us a lot about the ecosystems around us. We'll be walking, paddling, watching and
0: listening. I think in the forest environment of course the more critical sense to employ is your sense of hearing of course because our view is obscured by the tangle of the wildwood the thicket the ears tell us much more about what's going on but what we're hearing is very typical really of British kind of woodland temperate zone this sort of habitat always you've got your kind of your, your classic characters of robin singing in the evening blackbirds chink, chinking away and the beautiful song thrush uh, giving us that beautiful sort of did you do it did you do it did you do it you did you did you did kind of serenade but i do think that we our system relaxes is put at ease with bird song It's no um, surprise that it features in those sort of relaxation, kind of meditation, kind of soundtracks that are very popular these days. And what are the birds communicating to each other at this time of night? Well, even song, it's a bit more subdued than, than dawn chorus, but essentially it's a little bit about the mating game. The males in this part of the world that tend to sing and basically they're sort of saying look i've i've had a good day i've fed well i'm in good shape i'm robust i'm strong i'm likely to survive the night and i'm basically good breeding material i've got the x factor
1: (laughs) (laughs) and as the sun sets which i imagine it will do in the next 10 or 20 minutes how will you expect the bird song to change
0: one of the last birds to call is the blackbird It does a version of its alarm call, and no one's really sure why, because you'd think it would be advertising itself to night predators, for example. But who knows, it could be just yet another kind of last hurrah, as in like, yep, I'm here, I'm still alive. We can also hear nightjar, which is another sound that's fading into sort of history, really, as they struggle to find the clear fell areas they like and the heathland that they like. But the classic... Um, Sound I'm hoping we'll hear tonight is the tawny owl, which is definitely abroad in these woods.
1: Tawny owls are reddish brown and they're only about the length of a crow, but a little bit more rotund. And in this forest at night, they are a top predator.
0: So that's a tawny owl just beginning to wake up. We can hear the birds kicking off a little bit. The blackbirds are alarming because... Needless to say there's a big predator in town. So, so what's he communicating? Yeah he's, um, he's communicating that other males need to pay attention that he's operating. His sound, his hoot is robust and it's strong and therefore don't mess with me kind of thing. It also might be very attractive to females of course as well. So that's generally what song is all about in birds. It's about making a kind of your presence known in order to dominate a particular feeding ground and maintain it for yourself and your progeny
1: what does that tell you about this habitat that the fact that you can hear tawny owls
0: the fact that you can hear tawny owls tells us there's food around essentially they're needing to eat the small mammals like voles and shrews and mice you hear that quavering hoot that's when it's on the move, particularly when the hoot is, is very quavery. That's when you look up and you just might see the silhouette. Now, the tawny owl is going to hang out and be very silent. You're not going to hear it when it's hunting because it's hanging out high up in one of the bigger trees. It's just listening. The owls have an extraordinary sense of hearing um, and uh, they've got a differential too so that one ear opening is a bit higher on one side of their head than the other and that enables them to get a like a grid reference accuracy on any small little rustle on the woodland floor. Immediately it knows exactly with pinpoint accuracy where that animal is. Then it will fly with its next sort of attribute, uh, with silent flight, um, through the trees remarkable it could fly right over your head and because of a particular design in the feathers you just wouldn't hear it uh and then of course it's using a certain sort of vision a capacity to apparently see in the dark well it's never really truly dark of course there are always photons available we can't see them we can't you know we don't have the capacity but the owl's eyes are such that they can make use of the available light coming from those few photons and navigate through the trees they're also feeling their way they've got very sensitive little kind of vibrational kind of uh, hairs in the on their eye sockets too
1: and why unusually for birds why do owls
0: operate at night everything has its niche there's little competition you know if you're an owl um, it's also it's a little bit of uh, safety from predators higher up the food chain you know you will have buzzards taking the odd owl for example uh, at night buzzards don't fly so it's a relatively safe sort of environment for them and of course if there's food supply that's active at night well they can take advantage of that
1: uh, you're saying that they're apex predators and so that that suggests that you've got you know they're at the top of the pyramid so that's that's particularly special that they're here
0: Well, that's right. Any any sight or sound of an apex predator is generally a good sign for an ecosystem. It means it's uh, I mean this is a sort of crude way of putting it, but it's approximately in balance if it's sustaining a population of those apex predators.
1: Chris sees if he can get a tawny owl to fly closer to us by making one of their calls. No tawny owl comes, and that's likely because it's not yet dark enough for them to be under cover, And the trees we're standing in don't have enough canopy for them to hide. And how are tawny owl populations changing in the UK?
0: So they declined for a while, over a period of 10 or 20 years, and it seems to have stabilised a bit. They're Britain's commonest owl Um And, you know, I don't think anyone was too sure why. You know, data collection is sort of limited, really. Obviously, we've lost a lot of woods, which is the obvious uh, answer over the years, uh, because they're a woodland owl, uh, specifically, unlike the barn owl, which likes species-rich sort of meadows, grasslands to hunt in. So there was a worry when the population were declining, of course, that it reaches, you know, the sort of numbers where it can't recover. Mm. You know, that's what we're looking at, for example, where birds like the cuckoo, the classic harbinger of spring, they're getting fewer and fewer. I mean, there was a cuckoo in these woods until about seven years ago. That shifting baseline is a real danger, because unless you've grown up, you know, listening to cuckoos, why would you care? Mm. Mm.
1: As the night goes on, the woodland changes character. The silhouette of branches against the sky look a little eerie, and I'm aware of my other senses becoming heightened. I'm acutely aware of rustling sounds around us and also the smell of wild garlic in the wood. I'm probably feeling a little on edge. As we come down to the river, the sound of water comes into focus. The animals that are active now are much more at home than I am, operating best at night.
0: A bat is able to interpret and receive back the sound waves as they bounce off every single thing they'll bounce off the surface of the river the trees and the moving prey it's so sort of fast and efficient that they can hunt you know these rapidly moving (laughs) little insects in the night by this constant sort of stream of sounds
1: and why do they use echolocation
0: well again it's nature's genius isn't it it's millions of years of sort of uh, design kind of Technology, nature has dispensed with an awful lot of things that didn't work, and it's kept going with the things that really did work.
1: We may not be able to see dark bats against the night sky, but with a little help from technology, we hope to be able to hear the echolocations they're famous for. So Chris pulls out a little box with a frequency dial and it's a bit like tuning into a radio listening to different stations at different frequencies. And most humans can't hear above 20 kilohertz but these bats are communicating at around 30 kilohertz and higher.
0: It amplifies any sounds that we can't hear now. There's nothing, is there? We can't hear anything? No. Okay, here we go. Hearing them they're a little bit distantly now, but they're hunting in sort of you know wide circles, figure of eights. I'm pointing it at the river at the moment, just to see if we can uh, catch any dorbenton bats that favour the surface of the river. A specialists hunting low over the slow-moving water.
1: I can hear something.
0: There's one. It's quite distant actually. It's picking. You hear pitter patter, like that. So we're just peering into the darkness now, not being able to see anything, but this bat detector is telling us that they're feeding. And those sounds that we're hearing are the amplified or the frequencies that are being lowered by the technology inside this little bat box um, so that we can actually hear it.
1: To get a better sound of the bats, we head out in a canoe. Bats love flying over the river and they can swoop down for a drink. And with the insects busying around, it's an easy meal. We turn the bat box back on.
0: Oh, there!
1: Oh wow, so that's a Dubentum. It looks like it's um, uh, drinking. Oh, it's coming back! Oh my god, that is so cool. Each bat produces a different sound that we can identify using the bat detector. This dubenton's bat is pretty common and the population's are considered stable in the UK, but historically bats have not done well in this country. The Bat Conservation Trust released a report, The State of the UK's Bats 2017, discussing historical and recent trends. For example, horseshoe bats, which can be found here in Devon, have lost an estimated 90% of their population in the 20th century. But since the 1980s, a UK law has protected all bats and their roosts. And in the last couple of decades, the populations of many bat species have increased in the UK. People have counted more than double the number of horseshoe bats in recent years compared to in 1990, while the Dubentons bat we just heard has stayed relatively stable during that time. From this river, we can also get a new angle on the tawny owls. Chris tells me to keep an ear out. What's that? This ya Oh yeah. <laughs> The tawny owls and bats are a great indicator of the health of these woodlands and rivers but to know more we need to check on some smaller critters. This wholesome night out has gone on way past my bedtime so I'm going to set up a little trap that will work its magic when I'm asleep. I have got back from my wild night out with Chris and it's about quarter past twelve and I'm turning my moth trap on. This moth trap is a big plastic bowl, it's about two foot in diameter and it has this plastic lid with a light at the top and the idea is that the moths are attracted to the light. And then they fly into the box within which I've put about 40 egg boxes, empty egg boxes, all just open up. And the idea is that the moths go in, they're attracted by the light, and then they settle on the egg boxes and stay there overnight. And then when I come up in the morning, they'll all be there. And I'll get to see what moths we have around here. Over the past 50 years Britain's population of larger moths has decreased by about a third according to a report by the wildlife charity Butterfly Conservation. Here in the south the loss has been greater than in the north. Habitat loss and pollution are considered the major causes. The moths we find in the morning will tell us something about the state of the environment around us. It's early May and it's a very cold night and it's pretty early in the season, so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't catch that much. I leave the box outside and wait until the morning. I head out of my cabin in the morning and I'm not going to look at what's inside till I meet Chris I put a cloth over it so no peeking Morning Chris Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Um, We should
0: go around the
1: back Okay We head outside to check out the moth traps And I lift up the cloth. Oh, there's one there. Look.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So it's, this, uh, it's a grey moth with these little, um, it's got a fluffy body and black flecks on it. And it's probably centimetre and a half long. It's got lovely little orange bits on its legs as well. Chris runs to fetch his identification book and I lift the egg boxes to see if there are any more sleepy moths hiding inside. Oh, I found another one. We've got two, Chris. This is great. We identify the first moth as a Hebrew character. And What does that tell us about the environment, the fact that we've caught so many Hebrew characters?
0: Um, Well, it tells us that there are um, lots of willow trees around, and willow trees are second in the uh, list of um, biodiversity yield you know after the mighty oak there is plenty of willow about and where there's willow you know, there's invertebrates it's a good sign of course that um, the right trees are in the right place but but it, it does you know reintroduce um, this notion of uh, insects and invertebrates being decimated over these last two generations due to the you know pesticide use due to um, the kind of air quality um, Mm. which has reduced and moths of course uh, which navigate using kind of the moon and are very uh, disoriented by you know the proliferation of street light Mm. uh, which is a a curse of the night it's just everywhere in Britain very few places you can go now which has got true sort of natural darkness um, without some form of light pollution so these moths are affected you know uh, in that way, too, so as well as habitat loss,
1: We later identify the second moth species as a muslin moth. This species is also relatively common, meaning their populations haven't faced the same challenges as some of the rarer species. Chris says we can't draw too many conclusions from tonight only. There was a late frost which may be why other species weren't out last night. But moths are an important barometer of ecosystems just like owls, bats and other forest dwellers we only find at nighttime. So we've emptied the moth trap and I'm just about to go home and our wild night has come to an end. Chris, what are your kind of final reflections on, on our wild night out and what do you think are the main sort of things that we've learnt from it?
0: Well, yet again, the night has offered us, you know, a experience of the other world, this forgotten realm, this part of the 24 hour cycle that has been banished really by our modern culture with our brightly lit rooms. But a little night walk doesn't have to be for very long just to sample some of these things is an enrichment.
1: And also one thing that Chris, you said, which really struck with me was the idea of us being tourists in our own landscape and never really getting to know it and being out in the darkness kind of gives you an insight into another side of life i think i'm going to be doing more wild nights out of the more wholesome variety in the months and years to come so thanks chris for taking me out it's been absolutely brilliant you've been listening to a special episode of science weekly out on location near Totnes in Devon.
0: So if you want to find out more, head to the Guardian podcast page at guardian.com and there you'll find a link to the book Wild Nights Out by Chris Salisbury.
1: Thanks very much for listening and if you have ideas for what we should cover in our next episode, do drop us an email at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. For now though, it's bye from me and bye from Chris. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.